Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, Morehouse School of Medicine, along with three other historically black medical colleges. Well, guess what? They're going to expand their genomic research, and that includes a new master's program in genetic counseling. And for each institution, an $11 million plus grant. We'll find out what that's all about. Also, East Point City Council member Joshua Butler says he has a plan to bring a hospital back to South Fulton County. And in just a moment, some big news regarding a ranking member in the state legislature. Important community conversations all just ahead. But first day, first this, it is the last day to vote early before Tuesday's big election day. And Georgians have taken advantage of it. According to the Secretary of State's office, more than two million opted for the in-person voting. Now, also, voters have begun to return absentee mail ballots at a higher pace as of this week. And as of airtime, the Secretary of State's office cites a little over 1,500 ballots have been rejected statewide. But they say those voters receive, quote, cure notices explaining how they can cure any discrepancy. In related election news, civil rights groups are blasting anti-transgender and race-based campaign ads that are running in battleground states like Georgia. From our WABE WABE politics team, Raul Bali reports an organization launched by former President Donald Trump aide Stephen Miller is behind many of these political ads. One ad talks about racism against white people, claiming the Biden administration put white people last for COVID-19 relief. The NAACP is asking for the ads to be pulled. Separately, ads are being run accusing the Biden administration of pushing gender experiments on children and putting boys in girls' bathrooms and girls' sports. Candidates like Herschel Walker are running on an anti-transgender agenda. The Human Rights Campaign says a significant number of those anti-transgender ads are being directed at black and Spanish-speaking voters. The ads do not make mention of specific candidates running for office. Raul Bally, WABE News. Let's talk education. State education officials have posted new English language arts standards for grades K through 12. This includes more phonics instruction for younger students and new benchmarks for cursive handwriting. Matt Jones with the Department of Education says the new standards are also presented in a format that's easier to read. So if you're a fourth grade teacher, and you're looking at the cursive standard, you can see what does my fourth grader need to be able to master. If they're struggling at that, you can see immediately what were they supposed to learn in third grade and how do I backfill maybe some skills that they didn't master so they can be on grade level. Now the standards will be online for a 30-day public comment period. If the State Board of Education approves them, they'll be implemented during the 2024-25 school year. I remember those big cursive alphabet posters placed around the classroom, and I'm all for phonics. Now, on to some breaking news today involving a longtime ranking Republican member of the Georgia State House. Let's bring in our WABE politics reporter, Raul Bali. Welcome. Hello. <laughs> okay. You're pretty happy on a Friday, huh? <laughs> I, I mean, it, it's, it's, I keep telling people the news just keeps coming, and this one, uh, we didn't see this. I didn't see this one coming. No, today. let's talk about it. This involves Georgia House Speaker David Roston. He just announced he will not seek another term as Speaker. Raul, what do we know? So uh, we've had a press release, and then I've gotten a hold of the letter that he sent to uh, to lawmakers. And, and as he said, he is not going to seek another term as House Speaker starting next year. He's going to finish out this year, so this month and next month as House Speaker, and he says it's because of a health issue. Mm -hmm. He doesn't get into details about that health issue, but he says 
that health issue is just demanding his time and, mm -hmm. and he needs to address what that issue is. He also does say that if he is reelected and he's running unopposed uh, next week, that he will serve as a regular House member starting next year. So he'll still continue to serve in the General Assembly, but just not as Speaker. Exactly. Right. Well, remind our listeners how long. I mean, I've had many conversations with Speaker Ralston. How long was he leader? He's been uh, the House Speaker for 12 years. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that position, and, and I want to, the reason why this is such a big deal is the power of the House Speaker. He is one of the few people in the legislature who can single-handedly stop or push legislation. And a perfect example was the massive mental health reform package that got through the legislature. That was his priority, and it was going to get through. Mm -hmm. Every time it hit a roadblock, he stepped in. And so that the House Speaker position is just that critical within the legislature, as important as, as governor, and frankly more important than uh, the president of the Senate, which is the lieutenant governor. Mm -hmm. That's how much power that position has. Well, and let's uh, for a moment, let's talk about David Ralston in terms of his leadership, uh, not only just within the Republican side, but also was he one that could be viewed as someone who would work across the aisle? Absolutely. That That is, you know, in the end, you know, he would make political decisions. And, and I think a perfect example is redistricting. You know, he made clear that that Democrats weren't going to be happy about the process, that this was a political process, but in other areas like mental health, he would reach out to the other side. And the budget's another example. So, you know, something that and is something he always talks about at the beginning of the session of how important the budget is. Mm -hmm. And generally, he really did work across the aisle on the state budget and still does. And Ryan, when will his term end, though? I mean, he's, he's not facing so, any opposition on Tuesday. Yeah, he is not. So he says in his letter, both in his letter to lawmakers, that he's going to finish being speaker through the end of this year. And then when the legislature comes back here on January the 9th, that's when they would elect a new speaker. Republicans would obviously have their candidate, mm -hmm. you know, uh, that that, you know, would, would most likely have enough votes. Uh, and then the new speaker would begin um, next year. And, and it's really going to be a big deal. Not only for that, he the, the, the new speaker is going to have to appoint a brand new chair mm -hmm. of the budget committee, the appropriations committee, because Terry England is leaving. Mm -hmm. And, you know, with all the big issues at the Capitol, still the most important thing is the massive $30 billion state budget. So you're replacing a House speaker and a House Appropriations Chair going into next year. Well, and since we don't know what's going to happen Tuesday, also you might have a new governor. And you, and but you also will have a new lieutenant, lieutenant governor, governor overseeing, mm -hmm. overseeing, and that's the president of the Senate. You know, lawmakers four years ago, remember we got a brand new governor and lieutenant mm -hmm. governor, and that was the first time both had been replaced at the same time in years. Mm -hmm. And the fact that David Ralston was over in the House, brought stability and comfort to lawmakers on both sides of the aisle. Any reaction yet from Governor Brian Kemp or any other leaders in the, in the General Assembly? Not really, because this, this has only happened here like a little more than an hour ago. So I think a lot of people, I haven't seen any statements. And if there are statements, I have talked to one lawmaker and, and they were surprised by mm -hmm. this. I think the only thing that I'm kind of like replaying in my head is maybe I should have realized something because I haven't seen David Ralston on the campaign trail much. Mm -hmm. And and he likes to be out there, you know, especially for state lawmakers and, and campaign. And it kind of dawned on me that I didn't see him much. But right now, you know, I only just pulled up to the Capitol a few minutes ago and, and we'll see what reaction that we have. Then. And finally, Raul, this is just ahead of Tuesday's election. Looking further ahead, what does this mean for Georgia politics without, and again, he's going to continue to serve as a, as a state lawmaker, but in that very important position as a majority leader here? You know, as, as we just talked about, you know, there's obviously the possibility of a new governor. You will have a new lieutenant governor over in the Senate, and now you'll have a new leader in the House. That's a lot of transition uh, for us to be following. And you're going to have a new budget chair in the House. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of transition on a lot of important um, 
positions at the state capitol. All right. WABE politics reporter Raul Bali with the news. Georgia House Speaker David Rostin will not seek another term as House leader, but will remain in the General Assembly for now. Raul, as always, we appreciate you taking the time. No problem. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. From WABE in Atlanta, Closer Look continues. I'm Rose Scott. It's called Genomic Research. And the Atlanta-based Morehouse School of Medicine, along with the nation's other three historically black medical colleges, well, guess what? They're going to be able to further what's called the cutting-edge scientific research, as well as close what they consider a disparity gap within the field. Now, all of this is made possible with some financial support from the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, CZI. So joining me now, because there's a lot to talk about, with all of this is Dr. Ivory Dean, CZI Science Program Manager, Diversity in Science, who oversees the program. And Dr. Rick Kittles, returning to Closer Look, Senior Vice President of Research at the Morehouse School of Medicine. Thank you both for taking the time. I appreciate it. Thank you. Good to be hey. back. Good to be back, Rose. Yeah. See, Dr. Kittles, you, you don't always get to come back. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Let's begin here because I want to make sure that for our listening audience, they understand, understand some terms before we dig deeper. And so I'll, I'll ask, Dr. Kittles, I'll start with you. Let's begin by defining this term for our listeners when we talk about genomic research. Well, well genomic research is uh, the study of DNA, which is the genetic material that's inside every uh, cell of our body. Every cell except for the red blood cell actually has DNA. This is uh, chemicals uh, uh, we call them nucleotides that we inherit from our parents. Mm -hmm. So half of the DNA that we possess comes from our mother, the other half from our father. And that DNA codes for things like skin color, hair texture, body weight, body height, and also susceptibility for disease. Uh, the, the study of, of that is called genetics or genomic uh, research. Okay, but so now someone listening says, so Dr. Dean, is there a difference between genetics and genomics? So I think that question should go to uh, Dr. Kittles. Okay, Dr. Kittles. Well, well, when we talk about the study of genetics, sometimes we're talking about small pieces of the overall genome, Okay. which, by the way, has several million nucleotides. And so we, we, we know that we have 23 uh, pairs of chromosomes. And so the, uh, uh, the study of the, of the overall uh, genetics of an individual is called genomic or genomic research. All right. I'm curious because I, I'm guessing, like many domains within public health, there's probably an issue of equity here. Yes? Mm -hmm. Now, who wants yes. to handle that? Dr. Dean, can you handle that one? <laughs> I, I surely can. So, um, yeah, so that kind of gives me a, a great segue into um, why um, CZI is tackling this uh, gap in genomics research. So, as you stated in your question, there is this great gap in between genomics research, and we see that globally. Um, uh, uh, people aren't represented globally when it comes to um, understanding understanding our genome and our ancestry. And so um, part of uh, closing that gap is partnering with institutions like the historically black medical schools that can um, conduct the research and also um, it will benefit communities of color. And so this is where um, the Accelerate Precision Health Partnership um, sprang from. And I like to emphasize partnership mm -hmm. um, because we're not just about giving money. We also want to um, have active engagement with these um, schools also. Before I get to Dr. Kittles with another question, and I'm, I'm curious, Dr. Dean, so how do you all, did, do you just 
I guess, what is the criteria you use to decide, hey, these are this is the area we want to tackle and we want to make sure we're partnering with these institutions? How do you all come up with that? Yeah, so CZI, we have our uh, prioritized areas of scientific research, but also our um, co-founders have dedicated $500 million towards diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so one of the um, things that we talk about is representative science is better science. And in order to get representative science, we need to go to where the representation is. Mm -hmm. And that will be at the historically black medical schools. And so Dr. Kittles, based on what Dr. Dean just said, and um, I asked about in terms of the issue of equity, uh, I'm imagining, too, disparities in access to genomic medicine is also a problem or an issue. Right. It is. I mean, it's, it's, if you think about the continuum of healthcare, care, there, there's disparities across multiple levels of that continuum. And uh, precision medicine is no different. Let me ask you this, because I imagine some listeners and mainly me wondering about can you give some insight into the role that, you know, genomic research is playing or can play as it relates to tracing family history, as it relates to certain diseases or, or conditions? What do we know about that? Well, you know, the, we, geneticists like myself have been studying uh, DNA and, and genetic variation across populations for a long time. Um, what, what I find interesting, though, is that the bulk of these researchers have really focused on European populations of European descent. And so there have been few few of us that have looked to increase that diversity. Um, the, historically, the work has shown that um, uh, in some cases, one can identify regions of risk in the genome. Mm -hmm. These are areas on, on chromosomes that, that contain a segment of DNA that um, you inherited from either your mother or your father that um, that is that varies. Um, mm -hmm. and, and so that variant may impact risk. Risk for diseases like breast cancer um, or, or prostate cancer or, or end-stage renal disease. These, these um, familial or, or genetic risks um, uh, vary in terms of their effect, mm -hmm. meaning in some cases, for some individuals, you may have that genetic variation, but you don't exhibit the, the phenotype or the disease. But in other cases, you do. And, and that's why, you know, this is rather complex work, because mm -hmm. what we what we're seeing is that you may inherit certain segments of your DNA that might contribute to risk. But there may be an exposure, an environmental exposure that actually is needed for you to get to manifest that mm -hmm. disease. Uh, we think about it like lung cancer, for instance, where some people smoke a lot mm -hmm. uh, and others don't. And uh, there's a you know, there's genetic variation that impacts uh, lung cancer. Um, and and, um, and and we find that for some of these smokers, they may not have that variant. And so they don't necessarily get uh, uh, lung cancer. So so it is, it is rather complicated, but but it's one in which we've been able to really catalog across the genome. This is, you know, tens of thousands of genes, um, you know, three and a half um, billion of these chemical bases. Mm -hmm. We've been able to catalog pretty well areas of risk. So we know where certain areas of risk for prostate cancer are, breast cancer. Mm -hmm. the, the challenge, though, is that variation or that risk in that region isn't consistent across all populations. So we know that um, uh, uh, since we inherit DNA from our parents, it's really structured across ge geographic regions, This these genetic profiles. So people of West African descent mm -hmm. may have a particular variant that if it's not in these databases that that's being utilized for making clinical decisions, mm -hmm. that's what we call precision medicine, right? Taking all the available information, in particular genomic information, and then the clinician making a, 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 um, a, a, um, a, a clinical decision based on that information. Um, and it has been working really well. And there are some populations that have, in fact, benefited from it. However, we, we do find that that communities of color, mm -hmm. for several reasons, are not necessarily benefiting from the from this, the current precision medicine products. That's because of the, the data, the lack of data in the databases, the cost mm -hmm. um, in, in a, you know, the you know, the, the, the cost is prohibitive for certain individuals and then also just the knowledge base. Um, and so there, there are many barriers to to um, equitable sort of uh, benefits across all populations. And so, Dr. Dean, if you all aren't partnering with these historically black medical institutions, not to say that they won't get done, but one could make the argument 
it will it may not be a top priority to focus specifically on communities of color if you don't have partnerships like this. Um, it, that's exactly correct. So um, not saying that, you know, um, other organizations can't also uh, contribute and, you know, help. But what we are wanting to do is accelerate, you know, this genomics research, accelerate and closing that gap. And so um, the best way to do it is through um, the financial support mm -hmm. and making sure that we um bring to the forefront and make these the institution uh, the uh, research that's being conducted at these institutions visible um, because historically um, a, a lot of historically black medical um, colleges and universities not just the the medical schools mm -hmm. are um, don't receive as many federal dollars for research and so it's very important to then um, uh, bring that type of support. We've had a lot of conversations on this program about that. Uh, Dr. Kills, I want to come back to you because I, I imagine it's not every day that you that you know your your present CEO, Valerie Montgomery Rice, says, "Look, we're getting eleven point something million dollars for this. Here you go, Dr. Kills. Take our listeners through what this funding will allow you all to specifically do." And I imagine it starts with students as well. Oh yeah, that that's central to our mission at, at Morehouse School of Medicine. So this, uh, you know, the, the money will allow us to um, invest in several areas, um, people. Um, so we're going to be recruiting and we've already started um, top notch scientists, many of, of color. Uh, these are folks with um, ex expertise in genomics who are going to help move the bar in terms of genetic and genomic research in the um, uh, uh, African-American uh, uh, community. Mm -hmm. uh, we're also going to increase um, the uh, infrastructure for data storage, data management, because this is big science and big science costs big money. And um, there, there has to be sort of this infrastructure so that we can not only um, uh, collect the data and manage it well and maintain it, but also to, um, to, to call through the data and, and then also protect the data in terms of privacy. Um, but the students are very important. I, I just want to mention that sure. part. Mm -hmm. um, we are making a big investment in students. So graduate students, postdocs, fellows, clinical fellows are all going to be actively involved in this research. And so we're very, very excited to to partner with CZI in this in this in this effort. And in terms of research, and I think, uh, Dr. Kittles, I might have had a conversation with you about this. I definitely know I've had it with other uh, folks in your field. And also, Dr. Dan, you can answer, ask, uh, answer this question, too, when we talk about, because it's been continuing, but I think it's gotten a little bit better, about participation, diversity and participation in research and clinical trials. And, and, and having a program like this, can that also help in, in getting more folks to be part of uh, as participants or, or down the road? And, and again, you know, often people bring up Tuskegee and, and other, you know, historical, and we know they, they happen and we should not be dismissive of those, but can something like this help even advance further participation in research and clinical trials for people of color and particularly black folks? Dr. Dean? I think it's a long pipeline. So it's from the career professionals who are conducting the scientific research and the community. So it's so many different aspects of the, the people of color we need to bring along at every stage. When it comes to clinical trials, we need, one, we need the physicians and the scientists of color, the black, science, black and brown um, scientists to uh, run the clinical trials, to conduct the research. And then we also need the cohort population to come from the communities of color who can participate um, in and benefit on uh, both ends of who's conducting the research mm -hmm. and then who's benefiting from the research. So it's very important to, um, uh, along every point of a, a field, mm -hmm. make sure um, it's that uh, diversity is embedded in every point because the type of research that is being conducted is based off of the researcher. And so if the researcher is not black or brown, a lot of black and brown issues and diseases don't get addressed. Dr. Kittles, what do you want to add? Oh, well, community is central to everything we do at Morehouse School of Medicine. And so the community is, we, we've already started engaging the community around this effort. Uh, I'll give you an example. The, 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 the Cancer Health Equity Institute has a program where we're out in the community 
talking about this issue of genetic testing and genomics and 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 getting feedback and so it's a it's a it's a um uh, uh discourse back and forth with with community members uh bi-directional uh, uh communications around this issue um and this is very important because we can only go but so far unless the community buys in mm -hmm. and and as dr dean mentioned the community buy-in is 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 easier when they see people who look just like them who are part of the community who care about the community and shares the sensitivities of the community so this is a this isn't just an exercise at the bench mm -hmm. looking at dna um, exploring variation but it's also um, engaging the community and getting feedback and support and, and, and excitement from the community about this effort. And Dr. Kittles, I want to paraphrase because I do have a question from a listener who wants to know, can they talk about the, can they point to a specific disease or condition that has been improved or even cured based on genomic research? <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> we can go, we can go to the classic example of sickle cell disease sure. where we know where the variant is. Mm -hmm. We know all the different pretty much all the different variants that are there that, that impact um, uh, sickle cell disease. And there's still a lot of work that has to be done in terms of how different variants impact the trajectory or, or the distribution of the disease. But one of the things is, is clear though, is that having that knowledge mm -hmm. allows us, allowed us to understand sort of uh, the, uh, the, the physiological impact of that genetic variation. What, what leads instead of a circular red blood cell into a sickle red blood cell, how oxygen is is or the carrying of oxygen is limited, and and um, and the ultimate um, uh, understanding about the cells that are responsible for for the phenotype. So much so that now we have um, um, bone marrow transplants where we can actually, for some individuals, cure uh, uh, them from sickle cell disease because of the basic understanding of the biology that came from the genetics. Now, are you talking about that CRISPR gene editing? Because we've talked about that on this program. Are you... No, no, I'm not talking about that. That's another... Okay, I want to be very clear. That is another application. I wasn't talking about that. Okay. I was talking about a bone marrow transplant. Where okay. You're transplanting uh, those stem cells that um, uh, into individuals that, that share a similar um, uh, 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 DNA uh, profile. And let me ask you, this, Dr. Kittles, because and I think Dr. Dean talked about this too in terms of that you know it is is no secret in whether intentional or not it just happens that historically black medical institutions receive you know far less funding. Why do you think that is? If you consider what the mission, the mission driven of these institutions are for communities that there's this huge disparities. We've been talking about this for decades. Why do you think there is still this continue this this I guess gap in between the funding for institutions like y'all's? I'm not trying to make it get political, you know, but I, I, I was wondering if Dr. Dean can answer it. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, just I can I can tackle it a little bit. Um, one of the things um, uh, that come to mind is thinking about um, just how again who is conducting the research and the prioritized research of uh, grant makers, uh, federal grant makers too. And so a lot of health disparities research is not at the as a top priority of um, a lot of those grants. And so um, a lot of black and brown um, researchers tend to do health disparities research, which is appropriate and needed. Mm -hmm. um, but then, you know, so when we go back to the topics, the the the, um, the diseases that are actually focused on, they tend to be less focused on black and brown uh, uh, diseases that are more, most prevalent in black and brown populations. Okay, Dr. Kittle, I love this question. You all, well, first of all, y'all got the money, right? Dr. Dean, y'all done sent them the check? Is it in the, is it in the account? <laughs> they have the check. <laughs> <laughs> Where do you begin now? What's phase one, Dr. Dr. Kittles? Well, phase one is establishing a, um, an external advisory uh, uh, committee who's going to help guide us in, 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 in terms of our um, decision making uh, in this process of developing a very strong genomic and precision medicine program. We've identified um, individuals uh, to, to hire so that the people piece is, 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 is forming. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're developing uh, these, um, or we're identifying uh, trainees that will be in these labs. And so we, we're very uh, actively involved in this year one process of 
of uh, consulting with advisors and and um, and rapidly identifying faculty and students to, to start the work. And that's great for you all. And Dr. Dan, y'all got some more money you're giving out uh, in the future we should know about? You giving you giving out money? You giving out money to public radio stations <laughs> for health reporting? I'm just kidding, Dr. Ivory. Actually, I'm not. Dr. Ivory Dean, she is CZI Science Program Manager, Diversity and Science, and Dr. Rick Kittle, Senior Vice President of Research at Morehouse School of Medicine. Thank you all for taking the time and really informing our listeners about a, a pretty big initiative over there. Thank you. Thank you so much. Closer Look continues here on 90.1 WABE from Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. In April, Wellstar announced Atlanta Medical Center South, located in East Point, would be converted from a hospital into an urgent care clinic, still leaving much of the south side of Atlanta Metro without an emergency room. And at that time, a statement from Wellstar President and CEO Candace Saunders read like this, quote, we're not closing Atlanta Medical Center South or leaving the community, close quote. Since then, the not-for-profit hospital system has also closed another location, obviously here in Atlanta's old Fourth Ward neighborhood. And a recent Atlanta Journal-Constitution report says the East Point Clinic may be shut down entirely. But now, here comes one East Point City Council member who says he might have a plan to bring a hospital back to South Fulton County. And he'll be talking about it at a town hall this Wednesday at East Point City Hall. And he joins me now, Councilman Joshua Butler. Welcome. And you're Joshua Butler III, right? Or the I'm fourth. fourth. You the fourth. Yeah, I don't want anybody to get upset in the family. You the fourth. Okay. Let's let's Yes, ma'am. How are you? I'm it's fine. It's so how great to, to see you and to hear you. It's like, you know, I'm fanning out right now. <laughs> really? Little little old yes. me? <laughs> yeah, to you to you, Rose. You're the best. You are the best. It's such a great opportunity to be here with you. Um, your your the way you inform the public and how you reach out to the public is always awesome. So it's a great chance for me to be here to talk about this hospital. Well, I appreciate it. And look, if you come up with a plan that works, you're going to be the best. <laughs> so let's, well, let's. I have a plan that works. All right, let's get to it. it. But first, I want to back up a little bit because I, I know that the reaction when Wellstar announced it was planning to close AMC South. I know you talked to people in the community. What did you hear? Well, Rose, it's very important that we have a hospital in our side of town. In fact, uh, Marvin Arrington coined it as a hospital desert. So <laughs> you have food deserts and hospital deserts. And, and let me just tell you how many people it affects. Mm -hmm. We're looking at 35,000 people in South Atlanta, 38,000 people in East Point, another 100,000 people in the city of South Fulton. And when you add College Park, Hatefield, some of these other cities, we're talking about 150 to 200,000 people. And let me give you what that what does that really look like? Mm -hmm. When you look at a city like um, Charleston, South Carolina, with this metropolitan area, 290,000 people, they have 11 hospitals. Mm -hmm. So for 200,000 people, we don't have one hospital. And so of course, the community is outraged about not having adequate health care in their community. And you, you know, also we should throw in because Tri Cities as well, right? So you're talking about East Point, Hapeville, Tri Cities, and just any any one around that area. Let me ask you this, Councilman, because did you all have any heads up? Were you in communication with Wellstar officials about this? Did you see this coming? Did you know this was going to happen? And did you have any conversations after they made the announcement? I did not see it coming. Uh, it, it was totally a surprise, and. To be transparent with you, I've been working very hard to have that conversation with Wellstar. And to their credit, we recently started our communications. But since April, I was that little drip of water. Hey, I need to talk to someone. I need to talk to someone. And they graciously um, started the conversation about two weeks ago. So I'm going to let you get to your plan, but it sounds like, to begin with, this is going to take a regional approach in terms of the cities in that area. So you're talking about neighboring cities coming together to create first 
correct me if I'm wrong, a hospital authority? You're absolutely correct. And it's going to take those neighboring cities. Um, since this, and I could give you some historic background about this too, but just to, to summarize, the Fulton County Hospital Authority is a hospital authority between Fulton County and DeKalb. Sure. And they take money for grading. Mm -hmm. um, the state law states that any two municipalities can come together to form an authority. And the purpose of that authority is to be a conduit for financing. Uh, I bet you don't know that Northside Hospital, that big, rich hospital on the north side of town, is also an authority. And so there are multiple business models in how we can make this successful. How optimistic are you that you all can come together and create this hospital authority? I imagine you also have to get the mayors or the, in, on board as well. I, I imagine our, your East Point mayor is on board with this. Well, let's let's start here. In order, the first thing is I know that we have the city of South Fulton on board, almost unanimous, and so they are in desperate need of a hospital. Also, my plan is to start with the hospital authority with East Point and South Fulton, mm -hmm. but expand that to that Tri City, which is College Park, Hapeville, but even take it further south mm -hmm. to go Fairburn, Union City, Palmetto, all of these Chattahoochee Hills, because. None of these people are represented with the hospital, and we need to have that. Well, and let's say you get the, the hospital authority created. Then you got to look at how do we get it funded. And there are all the uh, sort of optics involved in that, too. So you're talking funding because Rob Pitts, who's a Fulton County Commission chair, has said they, they ain't got a whole lot of money right now. They got some, but he's all, he has said, you know, look, we, we, we running on fumes. That, that's what he said, in a sense. So how do you what's the plan for funding? Well, I think that's a great question, and I have two answers for that. The first thing is this. When we live in a state with a $6 billion surplus and we have 10 hospitals closing, that's an issue. And so there is money there. We have to choose how do we want to spend that money. The second point is, with my plan, first we develop an, a hospital authority, mm -hmm. but I have already raised $15 million from Wall Street company I3 to even get this process started. There are companies that want to invest in the healthcare and in healthcare industries, especially municipalities. So funding can come from a myriad of sources. We can get private funding, public-private partnership. And one other fact is, yes, ma'am, I see you. No, go ahead, go ahead. I'll let you and this hospital is also in an opportunity zone. Mm -hmm. So there are tax fundings available for businesses to locate in this area. So it could be a tremendous benefit for everyone. I want to go back to something that you said. And I want to be clear because I want the listeners to understand it because I wasn't sure. So if I don't understand it, they probably don't either. You're saying you have secured or you have access to this $15 million. And also, if you have access to it or you've secured it, where's it being held? Because... Isn't part of Georgia code that before you can start getting money, you have to have the authority formed? Or am I? Well, so, and that, so it's like when you go apply for a bank loan, right? And you want to make sure that you qualify, you know, and you've yeah. got to go to the right bank and start having those conversations. And so I've started to have those conversations. And from the very beginning, and that number could increase before we... Before we even get to that point, you're right, we form the authority. Then that's when we have to cooperate with Wellstar to really look and see what are the financial needs of this. But the point is, there's a company that is already very interesting, and they've started out their number with $15 million, which could go up, it may go down, but we have to really look at what are we dealing with, what do the numbers bear out. Will you also, council member, Butler, will you also, I'm thinking it's necessary to have some type of feasibility study with the closures of rural hospitals and the closures there, obviously, where you all are, obviously funding is always an issue. So someone listening says, yeah, 15 million to get started. Okay, but they, that don't even probably, that's just a drop in a bucket to what you will need to fully fund a new hospital and, and sustain it for a while. So, so here's what my research has shown. In order to sustain South Fulton Hospital, we need a total of about $38 million. And that's to carry the hospital. No, for 24 months. 
And that's what my research has. And so what we need to do is to verify that. We need to get the books from Wellstar to really determine what is that actual number. But from the research that I have done with the people and the experts that I've assembled, that we need $38 million to start. So of that $38 million, we've already in principle have a commitment for $15 million. But we won't know what those actual numbers are until we start to really look at the books and see where we stand. Well, if you haven't really looked at the books, how did you come up with that that number you just gave me to sustain a hospital for 24 months? So this is what we need to do in order to verify that. And let me start by saying this. There are companies out there, management companies that want to come in and help failing hospitals. I'll give you an example. Southern Regional was about to go bankrupt. Mm -hmm. And then there's this company that came in, came in, turned it around, and now that hospital is making money as sustainable. One of the companies that I've talked to, this management company, is the company that has done that research for us to say this is what our target number should be. Because we can't go into it not having any information. And so there are experts that have that information. And I just so happen to have engaged with people like that. Because what I really want us to know that this is not about I, it is a we. And so we have to bring in appropriate team members to come in and do that. We have the financing availability from the Wall Street company. We have a management company that we will consider that has expertise in turning around these hospitals and they have to have the community and the government involved too. So to summarize, yes, there's money involved, mm -hmm. but to just be very simple, we have to choose how do we spend that money and where do we get the money from? And what I think the public doesn't know is my job to inform them, there are companies that want to lend money. There are companies that understand how to turn around hospitals. And so it's not as heavy as lift as some people would like for you to think. I wanna back up to it because You've done, your, you've done your research, so you know then that when it comes to what some refer to them as safety net hospitals or, or, or you know, hospitals obviously in, in urban areas, we know why they struggle. They struggle, and you know this, council member, because they treat a lot of the patients maybe uninsured, okay, or, or who have Medicaid, which doesn't always cover all the costs, and those are the primary factors we hear when rural hospitals have been closing and now urban hospitals. You have to take all that in consideration in terms of who you're going to be serving. Yes. Yeah, so if I can answer that question by with a, a story, and it's a very important story. So I have a close friend of mine who is a doctor who owns a clinic. Mm -hmm. And so she had this young lady to come in and she was being treated for a sexually transmitted disease over and over and over again. And the doctor said, why should my tax dollars keep going to treat this same illness when I've spoken to this young lady about what she should do? But then, which is a great question. And so then I talked to another friend of mine who's a doctor who works for the federal government. She said, because that young lady needs a different type of doctor now. She needs a doctor to come and speak to her mindset. And what that means is, and I think this is the whole purpose of Obamacare and where they want it to go, you can decrease your costs by increasing the services that you give to these people. Mm -hmm. So one of the key steps in being successful in these type of hospitals, most people use the emergency room as a primary care physician when there's sure. a problem. And so what a lot of these hospitals have done to become successful, they offer these wraparound services to get these uninsured people qualified for government assistance, which they are. And then the next thing they do is when you come in for something that really needs a primary care physician, they say, okay, Josh, you're here for that. I'm going to set up an appointment with Rose on Thursday. And I'm going to make sure that you get to that appointment. But before you go to Rose, we have this counselor here that's going to help you get all of your paperwork in order so that we can make sure we get you the services that you need. And, and the reason why South Medical has turned around is because they implemented that type of strategy to get that health care. So in other words, you're saying not just a hospital that you want folks to come to when it has reached a crisis level or the urgent level, besides an emergency, but also providing 
services and resources in terms of maybe preventive and, and, and managing so that they don't get to using the emergency room as their primary care access. Sounds like, is that what you're exactly. saying? Exactly. Okay. That's exactly what happens. And it works. And there are business models that show that. So form the authority, get the, get the money, <laughs> get the money, and then what? Well, it's good. But first of all, I had to make sure we could get the money. <laughs> <laughs> You're gonna need more than you know, fifteen million, Councilman. You know that. Oh right? yeah, we're gonna have we're gonna need more than fifteen million. But just having a start and understanding how it wasn't very difficult to find people who wanted to do that. Then we came out. Okay, this is the structure, and the house, the um, hospital authority is the first step in that plan. And then we have to make sure that we get community involvement, that we get the participation with all the municipalities, because. It's the 21st century, and it's egregious for us not to have a hospital to service 200,000 people, and we shouldn't have these type of problems today. When you have this town hall with that folks are going to attend, what are you going to stress? You're going to stress what you just told me? Are you going to have other people with you to, to get everybody on board? And, and have you heard back from all the neighboring cities that they're going to come together to at least hear your plan? Well, I, what we're doing now is... We have cities that are eager to participate. Of course, everybody wants to see the devil in the details. And what we will do is provide that for them to make sure that everybody knows what they're getting into. But what I do want to stress is we do not, and this will not be funded on the backs of property taxes Mm -hmm. because no, we couldn't afford that. But what we can do is like we have Rob Pitts going to the state to get money from Grady. If you have all of these cities that are in their own authority, now we have the leverage to say, look, Governor, we need some of that money too. And the money is there. You're going to ask, well, whoever is going to be, well, this is going to be Wednesday. I don't know what the results will be Tuesday, but you need the state to support this. You all will need that, correct? Whether it's, it, it, and it well, looks like and a financial support. That's what you want. We want, and in addition to the state, um, um, Congresswoman Nakima Williams has also pledged that she would do what can be done on the federal level because this is why it's important. That hospital on Cleveland Avenue is supposed to support an emergency at the airport. Mm-hmm. And so I've also, Atlanta has our former mayor, Keisha Lance Bottoms, in Washington, D.C., working in the West Wing. I was able to talk with her and she's passionate about this problem too. So we have people that are willing to solve this issue. We just have to lace up our boots and put some work in to get it done. I want to be clear because to be honest, I didn't get a clear answer. Do you have the support of your mayor on this plan or any other city council members? Yes. I, well, and I can't speak to, because we have not had a vote, but I do know that my Councilmates are eager to hear what the details are, and they they know that something has to be done to make this happen. And so we'll know if we have the five votes when it's time to vote. But I'm pretty sure everybody's eager to to have a plan to come back and get this hospital back in our neighborhood. So you've shared the plan with me, but you haven't shared the plan with them. Of course, <laughs> oh, okay. I had to share it with them before just, I came to you. I'm just. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm flattered. I'm like, oh, that's cool. But just wanted to make sure. So you feel like you, you have the so you need the vote in order to go ahead and try to develop the hospital authority. Correct. Well, there, there are two things. First, there was a Tri-City Hospital Authority before where there was a partnership with East Point, Hapeville and College Park. Mm-hmm. So legally, what we're doing is exploring. Do we want to re- revise that and expand it or do we want to start anew? But we know the state law allows for us to have that type of authority. And finally, uh, Councilmember Butler, you know this as well as I do when it comes to politics and trying to get everybody on board. You have to maneuver through all this. It sounds like this should not be a partisan issue. It should be a bipartisan issue. Do you have some concerns about that? Uh, Well, of course I do. (laughs) I I wouldn't be less than transparent. And I'm not really a politician. I'm a public servant. You hear that all the time. But yes, there could be some political things. And and even dealing with the the closing of the hospital, I know things that I dare not share, but that's irrelevant because what's relevant is 
the fact that we need emergency care and adequate health care on the south side of town. Well, and at the end of the day, too, it's about potentially, possibly saving lives. And also, yes. I'm curious within this, within the restructuring, if you are able to get this hospital, are you going to make sure, or can you make sure, maybe it's too early, that there's some other services? You, When we talk about maternal mortality rates in this state, you know, and then look, Every county doesn't even have an OBGYN. So are you going to make sure there are some certain specialties that, that need to be in that hospital? Rose, I think that you're absolutely correct. And it's interesting you mentioned infant mortality, because one of the things that we have to do to make this hospital successful is, and let's just put it on the table, we have to make sure that we are able to pay for our emergency care with other services. One of the things that Northside does very well if Every woman basically in Atlanta goes to Northside to have a baby. This hospital must be known for something and offer excellent service, so it has to be competitive. And one of my ideas is maybe we do become a maternity ward for the South Side to help fund the emergency room. But there are so many health care needs that we have in this community, and that is one of them. And finally, as we wrap up, is there a plan in terms of how you all will attract? You want the top you want the best that you can in terms of your, your hospital staff, your personnel. You got to pay folks their money. You know that. You got to pay folks what they're worth. So all of that's going to be laid out in your plan. I, I feel like I'm drilling you, and I don't want you to think that, but I'm just asking questions. Well, first of all, and I think these are great questions, and the next thing is all of those answers not going to come from me. It's going to come from us as a group, but I can paint my big, broad picture for you. And my picture is this. We have this beautiful hospital on Cleveland Avenue. We have a doctor that lives in South Fulton in a nice big house with land. And if he needs a limo ride to the hospital, you, we're going to provide No, you not. Him. You better get on the bus or walk like everybody else. You no know, limo ride. You need but ambulances. Not, you need ambulances, not a limo ride. <laughs> we want to attract the best talent. You know, and we want to be innovative in how we do well, that. Well, I just talked to Morehouse School of Medicine, so y'all need to invite them to the table. I've had that conversation, too, with the <laughs> dean of Morehouse School of Medicine, because one of the successful hospital models is the teaching hospital. Gotcha. East and Point. so we've had those conversations, too. Gotcha. East Point City Councilman Joshua Butler. Thank you so much for taking time. I really appreciate it. We're going to check back in with you after that town hall meeting next Wednesday. And I look forward to checking with you. All right. That's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our producers are LaShawn Hudson, Daniel Razel, and Pat St. Clair. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. So send me an email, rose at wabe.org. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.